Hello! Welcome to the Word on the Hill with the Lanky Guys. My name is Father Peter Musset. We are a podcast. I am, I am Scott Powell. We are a podcast. You were trying to avoid using the word podcast in reference to us. Well, the, the problem is... Talk to me about why. Because oftentimes I'll say, welcome to the podcast. You always say that. I know, but... You usually sing it or rap it. I know, and then I was thinking about it as I was listening to myself say it. <clears throat> okay. I mean, it is and a, I a realized, truth. Yeah, it, but, but to, per, to put such a pronunciation as the podcast... So when I when I drove us to that we we drove together to Denver today and I didn't say welcome to the car right. when you got in right but I, I could have you could have I mean it, I mean you welcome could to say, the house welcome, welcome to the coffee shop welcome to my house <clears throat> isn't that Florida dude <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm glad we have segued to Florida welcome to the podcast so is the argument over whether we should put the article there or not right welcome to podcast. <laughs> <laughs> my name is Scott Powell. <laughs> oh my gosh, you guys. You guys. Uh, it we, is Lent and we're loopy. Yeah, this is the Thursday after Ash Wednesday. Tell you what, I am already tired of Lent. We are, what, 24 hours in? Man, Maybe I did a little more than All that. I wanted to do is I have one Red Bull in my refrigerator. I haven't wanted a Red Bull. I got in one months. Red Bull in my pocket <laughs> and the, the other, other one's <laughs> giving itself up for Lent. <laughs> yeah, I mean, no. I just went to the refrigerator and I got a glass of water, man. Oh. Dude, that, it's like it's just yeah, hard. No, you're, you're just Lent like, is hard. Yep. And so we are going to be in the first Sunday of Lent. We are it going to be in a couple days. It's also St. Dominic Savio's day. St. Dominic Savio. <coughs> Sorry. I'm still trying to shake it. <coughs> Sorry to shake a cough here that I've been it's been hanging on for a while. Mine too. Oh. I, you cough, I cough, we all cough. For cough coughs. <laughs> All right. Our first reading this week is coming from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 20. <laughs> the second law. Deuteronomy chapter 26, verses 4 through 10. Our responsorial psalm is Psalm 91. Okay. 1 to 2, mm. 11 to 10, okay. 12 to 13, mm. 14 to 15. Yeah. And 15b is the response, which is really kind of nice, actually. It's very contiguous. Yeah, I was just going to, I couldn't think of the right word, but contigu- contiguous is it. Our second reading is from the book of Romans, chapter 10, verses 8 through 13. Um, I can't figure out that why they have that one in there, by the way. Oh. Actually, I kind of can't figure out why anything is put together this week. Okay. But I like all the readings. All right. I think that they're good, but I don't know how, if I have a link yet. I have so many links. Our gospel is Luke chapter four verses one to thirteen. All right, that's um, that's uh, Lent for you, everybody. <laughs> that is Lent for you. That's not Lent at all for you. Hey, everybody, yeah. I'm so happy you're listening. Deuteronomy. So, um, Deuteronomy. Mm. <clears throat> from what I can remember, what you told me is okay. basically it's like like a month long homily from um, from Moses as the people are preparing to go into the promised land. Yeah, okay, that's not, I was about to make fun of you, but that's not, that's not uh, a terrible reading of it. That was actually, you know what, it, you didn't tell me that. That was um, Deacon Ned who told me that. He got it from me. Schneidecker. No, I'm just kidding. Is that how you pronounce it? Schneidecker. Okay. I don't know, actually. He, he'll listen to this and then he'll go like, that's not how that's you pronounce not how it. Pronounce well, it's not his first name either, so that works out too. Ned is not his first name? No. What is his first name? I can't tell you. <laughs> <laughs> I'd have to kill you. Wow. Well, all right. Uh, Deuteronomy. Uh, I don't know if it was a month-long homily. That's that's the only part I take issue with. It's hard to say how it was sort of presented to the people, but but here, okay. Um, I have one thought about an interesting carrier, carrier pigeon. Carrier pigeon on my head. Podcast. 
that's how it was presented to <laughs> yeah, them. Yeah, yeah. No, no, it was from the mouth of Moses. I just don't know how long he took to do it. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I mean, let's 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 do a, a, a recitation of it. Okay, and, and see how long it can takes we not to record it. I would love to not do that. Can we not do that either? We cannot. We can. I don't know, man. <laughs> okay, here's the two things you need to know about Deuteronomy. Um, the, the the word itself, as we've we've said many second times, law. second law. Deuteronomy means second. It almost means law. Plan B. But but there's a yeah, yeah it is it is those things but but there's a there's a deeper that that's an easy go to to kind of uh, contextualize it in the rest of scripture, um, but the way that Deuteronomy works because we're really in the thick of Deuteronomy we are in a very strange passage in Deuteronomy yeah no kidding that I I love Deuteronomy I actually think Deuteronomy well. Deuteronomy is objectively one of the most important books in the Bible. Absolutely. It may be the most important book in the Old Testament because it is the foundation for everything. Um, and But it's also one of my favorite because it's actually, it's less about this strict hardcore law code and more about the idea of giving God the heart. So the word heart, lavav, actually appears more in the book of Deuteronomy than it does anywhere else in the Old Testament. Oh. And so it's it's been called that Deuteronomy is the quote unquote heartbeat of the Old Testament. Oh. Tom Smith gave me that one, which Good job, it's Tom. true though. That's real. Um, but yeah, the second law, uh, what was the first law? Uh, the 10 commandments, 10 off, commandments. The, off the top of the mountain. Yeah, it's exactly, that's exactly right. So, um, I've, one of the ways to look at Deuteronomy as, is, um, as the, the Israelites constitution. So this is the most, so the Exodus generation has now died off. They're gone. Like you said, there's a new generation. The 40 years of wandering has now ended and the new generation is about to go in and take possession of the promised land. Right. Okay. So Moses is giving to a brand new generation, all of the instruction. First of all, the whole beginning of the book is a recounting of salvation history saying, you have to know where we've come from. You have to know where your fathers and forefathers fell short and where they abandoned God and why that was bad to understand for things for the future. And here's what you will do once you go to the land. Here's how you will operate all d- down to the nitty gritty. This is what society will look like. This is what your interactions look like. This is what commerce looks like. This is what agriculture looks like. This is in the section we get today, what offerings look like in the temple. It, it gets down to the very nuts and bolts God is saying, I, which is beautiful because it's God saying, I want to be a part of absolutely every part of your life. Right. It's not just God giving boring, dry laws and rules for everything. It's saying, I want to be a part of everything. And so here's this laid out. And so if Deuteronomy is understood as sort of the covenant, uh, the covenant constitution for the people of Israel, it, it's so, you know, we talk about a second law, plan B, all of those things. And, and that is theologically true. It does come after. And there's a lot of concessions in it that probably weren't supposed to be the case originally. Jesus says that. Like hot tea, hot dogs, Cokes. Right. Pretzels. What's the hot connection? Okay, you just, hot links. Concessions. Oh, Oh, that was good. I knew there was something I wasn't getting. I threw in the hot tea just specifically for you. The hot tea really threw me off. Yeah. And I only sold cold tea at Mile High Stadium, incidentally. Iced tea. Oh, you did not sell a hot tea. No, we were an iced tea company. Yeah, you totally threw me off. (laughs) I'm sorry. Um, That's a story for another day. Yeah. But if Deuteronomy is the Constitution, it it comes on the heels of the Ten Commandments, which were understood sort of be... Again, this is by analogy for us. They were like the Declaration of Independence. And it was declaring our independence from the gods of Egypt. Got it. That we are not slaves to them anymore. We are declaring our independence. This is who we are in God. And now 
And again, in the midst and in the shadow of some pretty deep failings and sin, now we're getting the Constitution. Okay, here's how we now live out our freedom. Right. In, in nuts and bolts kind of ways. And so what, what's sort of strange is the passage that we are getting thrown into, it does a lot of things. It, it's, if you think of it as sort of a Constitution, this is what, and it actually does. Scholars have studied the book of Deuteronomy in depth, and it follows the format of ancient Near Eastern civilizations' constitutions. Oh, really? There are vassal treaties and stuff that we've discovered that actually follow the same format as this book as far as declaring what we're supposed to look like as a nation. So it really is that, and that's actually how Israel... That's why I say it's foundational for the whole Old Testament, yeah. because that's how the Israelites saw this book. It shaped everything. Wow. So that's very important. That's I think this is partially why, as you mentioned, the second reading is there, because the second reading kind of is tied into this. But um, this is Moses. So I'm not sure where the connections are either, to be quite frank with you. But one interesting connection I see, and I don't know what to do with it, so I'm just going to throw it out there. We're at the very end of the 40, day, uh, 40 years of desert wanderings, which is sort of like we're, we're be, at the very first Sunday of Lent, the church is, is throwing us into the very end of Israel's Lent. We're on like the last day of Lent as we start our first day of Lent. Which I'm not sure exactly what to do with that, but where we're thrown into the story, the 40 years have ended. We have suffered. We've been purged. We've fasted, so to speak. And now Israel is going to take possession of the land. And there's all sorts of problems that are going to come along with that. But it's basically this encouragement looking forward saying there is an end to this. There's an end point to what we're doing. There's a time that all of these things will end and we get to go and be free and feast which is kind of beautiful. Yeah, which is, <clears throat> I mean, which is like, I'm always thinking about Aristotelian causality. Obviously. Obviously. Aren't we all? <laughs> and and it's the first in intention is always the last in execution. Okay. So in a certain sense, by giving this at the end of the 40 days, what we're seeing is we're actually giving an intention. The beginning of the 40 days. This is the beginning? Of the 40 days of Lent. Yeah, we're in the beginning of the 40 yeah. days of Lent. They're in the 40 years. They're ending the 40 yes, years. Yes, correct. Yeah. Sorry, I, I must no, have no, said I'm, the I'm wrong word. You. I'm tracking. So so what's happening is we're, we're being reminded on this first Sunday of Lent to say, check it out. This is going to end, and you're actually heading towards a feast. This is for yeah. something. Yeah. This yeah. is for a promised land. This, is, this isn't just for its own sake. This is actually pointing and directed towards something that's real and good. And, and it is, and it's saying that, and, and you can't understand that. That doesn't make any sense. Unless you look back over the, the sort of, so to speak, Old Testament Lent. And so Moses begins, he's like, all right, here's how you do the offering. Like they're literally marching through piece by piece of how society works. But he basically says, you're going to receive pass the, the basket, priest, pass the basket, the priest will get it. And then you will declare before the Lord, your God, Hey, don't forget. That's sort of the, what, what's implied here. My father, and this is a reference to Jacob, right? Whose name was then changed to Israel, the foundation, the forefather. My father, Jacob, was a wandering Armenian. He went down to Egypt with a small household. He lived there as an alien. Aramean, not Armenian. What did I say? You said Armenian. Ar Aramean, sorry. Yeah. Syria. Aramean, Aramean. He went down to Egypt. They lived there as an alien. They became a nation. They were strong and numerous. The Egyptians maltreated us. They oppressed us. They imposed hard labor. We cried to the Lord. He heard our cry. He saw our affliction, our toil, our oppression. He brought us out of Egypt with his strong hand, his outstretched arm, his terrifying power, signs and wonders. He brought us into this country to give us this land which flows with milk and honey. And if you understand that, and only if you understand that, well, whether you understand it or not, you need to know that that's what happened because now that you were in this land, this place, this sort of place of Easter, so to speak, 
you have to bring the first fruits of what you have because you are blessed and you have been given gifts and riches and graces. And so you must bring the first fruits of all the products of this land that you've been given to the Lord, which God gave you. And then we set them beside we set him aside before the Lord and we bow down before his presence. Right. But it's important that Moses can't give that instruction unless uh, before he looks back over how we got there, which is in a certain sense, what it's doing is telling the principles of Lent. You cannot get to the promised land unless you go through the desert and suffering. Right. We can't get to Easter unless we go through Lent. And the beauty of <clears throat> Christianity is that we're in Easter. We are an Easter people. John Paul II, right? And Alleluia is our song. That's who we are fundamentally. So even when we enter into this period of Lent, we're, we're remembering something that has already passed. We're going into a suffering that Jesus has already endured, already conquered, and has already brought us to the other side of. But we remember it and we enter back in because it's important. But we also, I mean, the church is very careful in this. This is why, and there's great debate among people in the church. The church doesn't debate it, but people in the church have great debate over what do we do with Sundays in Lent. And if you actually count it up, of course, there's not 40 days in Lent, there's 46. Because this church has built in this little reminder into the liturgical season that, yeah, of course, we fast, we pray, we suffer, we, we give alms, we do all these things. But when Sunday rolls around, that is the built-in reminder that Jesus has already risen. These things that we're remembering, it's already done. It's already been fulfilled. And Sunday always takes precedence because Jesus has risen. He is, he is conquered death. He has conquered death. And all of the fasting is remembering something that's already taken place. But he is back to life. We're not mourning. I mean, fasting, the tradition of fasting in Israel comes from mourning over a death. And so the traditional day of fasting in the church is always Friday because Friday is the day that Christ died. And you fast on the day of a death. You fast for a funeral in a certain sense. We just came from a funeral. And so right. we're reminded of all these things. But what the church is always trying to keep in tension is that the funeral didn't take, like nothing held here. Jesus is actually alive. Right. So yes, we recall that. We remember it. We fast because we have solidarity with that experience. But that's actually all over. It's a weird, Lent is a very strange tension as Christians, I think. Does that make any sense? Yeah, it does. Because <laughs> because it's always the becoming, but not yet. <clears throat> yes. It's, it's the entering into <clears throat> what has already been accomplished. Yeah. But yet, going through it with hearts disposed to what is actually, like, taking place through it. So it's a, encountering, the, like, the magnitude and the grandeur of the 40 days of Christ in the desert, the 40 years of Israel in, mm. in, in the Exodus. It's, it's actually going through all these things. And, and still yet, at the same time, it says, no, inbuilt into our week is still this, this seventh day, this, yeah. this eighth day, this yeah. <clears throat> this new both the beginning of the week and the end of the week and the the simultaneous expression that yeah. that is very confusing but it also allows us to enter into whatever's in <clears throat> being proposed at the same time it's funny that you say entering in because i think that's actually a good segue into psalm 91 mm. which is a psalm about entering into stuff <laughs> literally yeah so the the response itself is be with me lord when i'm in trouble which is such a i mean come on <clears throat> if we're going to sing something that's like the one it's a good one to sing right but um we have to understand how the psalm gets there i think 
Mm. So the, the, the way that it begins, who, who dwell in the shelter of the Most High, who abide in the shadow of the Almighty, you say to the Lord, my refuge, my fortress, my God in whom I trust. So the idea of this, um, it, it's, it's a testimony about what it means to trust in God. What does it mean for a people to trust in God? Which right. is a great um, analogy back to the book of Deuteronomy, which is this encouragement for people who are about to go into something that they've never gone into before, where they need to trust in God, where God is going to dwell in this place. And it's actually believed that um, Psalm 91 was probably wit- written by one of the, the priests or the Levites, perhaps, that actually worked in the temple or, or guarded the temple, possibly, as a word of assurance to the people entering into the temple who might be a little terrified. Because this is God's house. We are entering into something profound. So as we go into this, who dwell in the shelter of the Almighty, I mean, imagine walking into this monumental structure that you knew actually held the presence of God himself and thinking, I am dwelling inside the shelter of God. And I am abiding in the shadow of where, not just by a metaphor or analogy, but the Almighty is like right over there. And he is my refuge. He is my stronghold. So be with me, Lord, when I'm in trouble. I'm going into someplace a little bit unknown. And it is appropriate and proper to walk into the presence of the Lord of fear and trembling. We should walk into church every time we go in with a little bit of like, oh man, I'm literally walking. Not not fear in the sense of I'm freaked out, but the fear of like, oh my gosh, there is something so much bigger than me here. We don't do that anymore when we walk into church because it's so so mechanical. But this psalm was actually designed to assist people walking into the presence of God. I'm going into the temple. I'm going near to the tabernacle. That's kind of terrifying. This is the God who created me and holds everything in existence. The God of life and death, and I'm going into his house. That's intense. You know, I got to tell you, the first first serious book of theology that I ever read. Yeah. Have I talked about this? No. It was Introduction to Christianity by Cardinal Ratzinger, then Pope Benedict. Right. Well, who later Pope Benedict. Yeah. Which is the most misleading title of a book that I think that's ever been Because it is like written. not an introduction, oh, introduction in any way. No, it's intense, but it basically walks through the creed. And it was before I really understood the Catholic faith, but there was a, there was a, a section about Holy Saturday, which is, I think, the most confusing day in the liturgical year, right? Yes. Saturday. It's this kind of in-between what's going on. Right. But, but he makes this challenge, and I remember seeing it and, and taking note of it, because I never thought about a Holy Saturday before. Right. I mean, it was the day kind of in between. And he says, go into a church on Holy Saturday, and I, I just didn't know this. And I'm sure I was probably taught, or I probably was told at some point, but I just totally unaware. And so he said, go into a church on Holy Saturday, and note the feeling of the place. It's different. The 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 um, emptiness. There's an emptiness. The candle is not lit. It's darkened. The door of the tabernacle is swung open. It's exposed the emptiness. And he's like the the building literally feels different. Something is not here that should be. And I I read that and I was like really like I just at the time I was like they take the Eucharist out like I didn't know that because I just was so out of touch. Right. And I remember going to a church then on Holy Saturday. And I, it was it was like another world. I'm like, I don't even recognize the place. Like, it didn't right. look different, but it was so different. Right. Um, why did I bring that up? <laughs> Fear and trembling and the, like entering into the presence of God, getting near the tabernacle. Like, Yeah, it was this reminder that <clears throat> there really is something here. This isn't just another building. You know, it's interesting because you talk <clears throat> about that and there's something fearful to me <laughs> the, about the Holy Saturday. It's a weird kind of fearful day. Right, because I because like 
feeling like it's like the the presence. I, I'm so familiar with the presence of the Lord. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like he lives right over there. Yeah, he's my roommate. Yeah, like or my housemate. I mean, I just live. Uh, uh, he we there's in case you guys don't know, there's a tabernacle literally just right here where we it's probably twenty feet from where we're sitting. Yeah, if there's that, a wall there. Right, exactly. But like in a door. Um, yeah. But like I don't know. I'm so familiar <clears throat> with the presence of the Lord that mm. that's the only the time that I realized the warmth of God's presence isn't there on Holy Saturday. And, yeah. and, and it's always disorienting. Yeah, um, which is right. That's actually what it's supposed to be in a certain sense. Right. right. Well, and in, in actually the literal sense of it, <coughs> like disoriented. <laughs> well, it's funny, you know, there, there are certain fasting times traditionally in Judaism. Right. And do you know what the traditional fasting times are for Judaism? No. It's the, it's the times that they believe that the temple was destroyed. Oh, first by the Babylonians, then by the Romans. Those are the times to fast traditionally, because when do you fast? You fast when someone dies. And the understanding was God's presence with us died. Mm. The temple in Jerusalem are almost personified. And so when the temple was destroyed, that was considered the greatest fast because it was like we lost a family member. And even more than that, it wasn't just the building, but God's presence was gone. So we must fast. So this is sort of, in a, in a certain sense, what we sort of relive as Catholics then when the Eucharist is removed from the tabernacles and the place is different. But um, there's something about, one of the things I'm seeing with all these readings, this idea of entering into something and be, entering into something with your eyes open. And that's what this psalm, I think, is meant to do, to go into the presence of God, recognizing you should be a little bit freaked out, but then you should simultaneously be comforted once you remember who God is. Oh, you Israelites, you should be a little bit freaked out that you're about to go into this land and take possession of it, and you've been waiting a long time, and God's been promising it for hundreds of years. That's exciting. But you should be also a little bit freaked out because that's intense. And you're only going to make it if you trust in God's providence. And they blow it when they stop trusting in God. And maybe there's something about right. the fact that as we're entering into Lent, we should be a little bit freaked out. Like, this is intense. We're entering into the most important event in all of human history. And we are going to walk that in those steps of what happened. And that should, that should give us some pause. We shouldn't be freaked out by it, but it should freaked give, give us pause. Well, freaked out's not right. No, it's, it's, it's to just actually understand the gravity Right. And once we do understand the gravity, then we can rightly say the words, be with me, Lord, when I'm in trouble. Right. Because I, I do kind of get the gravity, but I also then get that you can be my comfort and my refuge and my strength. Yeah. I think about the Lord, like he, he gives a full gift of himself and he wants nothing short of a full gift of ourselves <clears throat> yeah. back to him. Yeah. And that's actually the fearful thing that I have in my heart as I was mm. praying even just in the funeral today about what does it look like to make a full gift of oneself to the Lord? And like, that's, that's like really the mm. call. And, and when you do, it's the best thing ever. Yeah. And you see the witness of a life that, that even if it, even if it's had its cost in a way that's, that's not pleasant to perceive. Yes. Like, even if it's taken that for a person, it's still beautiful when you see a, a soul Say, I will give everything to God, no matter where or what he asks of me in the midst of that. Yeah. Which is interesting because then then we do see, as the second reading in Romans is going to get us to, is is the, <clears throat> how does then God make a gift back of himself to us? Yeah. Which is the word is near you in your <clears throat> mouth and in your heart, the word of faith we preach. Which, what what's that a quote from? Do you remember? I don't. Deuteronomy. 
Really? Yeah. And it's what it says, the word is very near to you in your mouth and on your heart. It's talking about the law of Deuteronomy that's just been proclaimed to you. Yeah. And basically what Moses is saying there is God's God's rule for your life, not just his laws or his rules in that sense, but the way he wants to order everything for you and gift you, like you just said, his word, it's not inaccessible. It's on your lips. It's in your heart. I've proclaimed it to you. And they're going to be asked actually in the next chapters of Deuteronomy to proclaim it back. It's when they all have to stand on the mountains and actually say all these things, we get it, we'll do it. It's not something high up to heaven you have to climb up to get it. It's not something deep in the ground you have to dig for. It's there. It's, it's, It's right with you. But he's talking again specifically about the law, about Deuteronomy, about this constitution in which God is laying out what he wants for them. But Paul is saying, well, that's all true, but the nature of the word has now changed. And the, Deuteron- the Deuteronomic um, constitution, which was good, but it was a plan B. And it was something that was required of you for a certain time because that's where you were in your maturity. Now something is different. The word has now come to us in a different way. And the word is not a covenant constitution written on, on pages. The word is now the very word of God made flesh. And through our faith, we believe in him, which means we accept him, we follow him, we become disciples of him. And if we believe in our heart that God raised him, the word, from the dead, then we'll be saved. We'll be. And by the way, when Paul is talking here, the context that we need to know about, and the reason I think Deuteronomy is really important here. Number one, because he quotes it. But number two, because the big problem in the church of Rome is you have a bunch of Jewish Christians, people who were Jewish and then became believers in Jesus, and a bunch of non-Jews, Gentile Christians who were pagan and then became Christian, who were trying to live and work together in this community and absolutely seem to hate each other (laughs) and are slighting each other. And the the Jewish Christians are like, well, you you bunch of idiots worship like logs and stones and owls and stuff. And you're a bunch of boneheads, and we're lucky we let you into the church. And then everybody else is like, well, you Jewish people, you rejected the Messiah, and you crucified him, and like you did all these dumb things. Like You're lucky we let you guys stay. And everybody hates each other. And this question has arisen in Rome over, well, what does it mean to be a part of God's covenant family? Right. Because the Jews are like, well, we've been a part of the covenant. We had it for years and years and years, and he gave it to us in Deuteronomy and all these things. And then the Gentiles are like, yeah, and you blew it. You had it and you blew it. And we didn't even have it. You didn't give it to us. And so they're, they're debating this. And Paul's saying, okay, you are, it's not by ethnicity. It's not by blood relation that you are sons and daughters of God. It is because of faith in Jesus Christ. And for Paul, faith always works through baptism. That's, that's a given in his theology, which is sometimes missed in the Catholic uh, Protestant debate. But he's like, no, faith requires action. If you believe in Jesus, you will be baptized and you will follow and we're not bound by these laws of Deuteronomy any longer. We were, and they were good, and they were for our edification and our glory. But God has moved back to plan A, which is that he sent his firstborn son to be our priest. And so now he lays these things out, and he says, the scripture says, no one who believes in him will be put to shame. For now there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, enriching all who call on him. For everybody who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, he says. But he's answering a big dispute among them, and he's using the book of Deuteronomy to do it. He's actually, in a certain sense, using Deuteronomy against itself. He's saying Deuteronomy is sort of proving why Deuteronomy is obsolete, because the word of the Lord was close to us in Deuteronomy. We could read it and hear it proclaimed, and that was good. But now the word of God has come even closer than that. 
He's jumped off the page. He's jumped out of heaven and he's become a human. He's, be, he's taken on flesh and died for us and risen for us. Mm. And it all then kind of comes together, I think, for Paul. So then for Paul, it's a step beyond. What are we entering into now? We entered into the promised land. We've entered into a temple. And now the temple is entering into us. And he says, that's what we respond to. Wow. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's, it, I mean, that's actually what we're preparing <clears throat> ourselves for and preparing the, as a church for those to be able to receive the Lord yes. in the Easter mysteries to be able to say welcome into that because of the depth of of the sacrifice of Christ it, now you will be invited because of mm. the this because of the work of God yeah. to to actually draw you close which is what we where we we're, we're at in the in Luke so how do, yeah and Luke is okay how? <clears throat> how how did it happen how do we do it right exactly can i say one thing just by way of pref, preface preference preface preface about Luke yeah man what happened? I like it when you preface stuff. Thanks, man. That's what I do. That's your job. Do you remember what happened just before uh, the temptation in the wilderness? That's what the, uh, the gospel is about. Just being tempted by Satan, right? The baptism, and I think I actually think Luke is the clear. Uh, uh, Mark is the clearest on this. Okay, all three synoptics kind of give the same account, but in Mark, and that's maybe that's just the one that's freshest in my head. Remember, Jesus is baptized in the Jordan by his cousin John the Baptist, and when it happens. Um, it's actually, do you know, this is the first place in the Bible where the whole Trinity is explicitly present. So you have Jesus, the son in the water, the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove descending, right? Yep. And the voice of God, the father who says, do you remember what he says? This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Do you know what God is quoting there? This no. is my favorite part of it. No. So God's quoting something. He's quoting himself because he's quoting scripture. Well, because but, yeah, you know, he's, he like, he's the author of all of it. <laughs> but yeah, the voice of God when he's baptized says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, which is a quote from Psalm 2, which is the coronation psalm. And so in a very real way, what's happening to Jesus in the baptism is his public coronation as king. Mm. Now he'll be coronated, coron, coron, coronado, crown, coron, crowned. In a, in, a, in a whole nother way at the end of the Gospels right. with the crown of thorns and, and elevated onto the throne. But in a certain sense, this is God publicly declaring, this is the king. This is my son, the king. It's what David prayed over Solomon when he was anointed as king and received the crown. That's what, Jesus, that's what God says to his son, Jesus. And what's significant about it, I mean, that's cool. But what's really significant about that is that, I mean, politically and societally speaking at the time, I mean, what, what, not even then. I mean, then, but also now. What do we all want our leaders to do? What do we want our politicians to do? Be honest and good. And yeah, no, we don't. We, we do. I mean, I know we kind of do, but what do we all deeply want from our leaders? Guidance? No. Um, let's see. Uh, money? No. Um, That's what they want from us. No. Well, I mean, well, government. Yeah, 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 and yeah. Government and its purpose is to... Uh, Get resources to those who are in need of it and to protect the borders. Like on a very human, like on a visceral level. Right. We vote for the person who's like, I will defeat the person you're afraid of. I will fix things. I will defeat the enemy. I mean, we, political candidates thrive when there is fear to be, um, to be capitalized on. Mm. Because if there's something we're afraid of, we want the one who's going to defeat it. And that's always yeah. been the case. I mean, right. I think you, you can make the analogy work today, but historically, right. even more explicitly, like you want your king to fight the enemies for you. Right. You want him to fight on your behalf. And so Israel is in the midst of political turmoil at this time. 
they don't have their, the promised land. The promised land they were getting in Deuteronomy, it's gone. It's controlled by Rome now. They've lost the kingdom. They don't have a king anymore. Now they have um, Judas, who's not even Jewish. He's Edomian. And then they've got this joke of, of, a, of a king and they have Caesar and all this stuff. Um, and they're waiting for someone. They're longing for someone who will come and save them. Right. Fix it. Defeat the enemies. Go and fight the bad guy for us. We want the guy who will fight for us. I mean, that's what, I mean, how many times have you heard that in a political campaign? I will fight for you, Colorado. Right. Uh, right? Exactly. That's like a catchphrase. Yes. We want someone who will fight for us. Yes. That's always been the case. That's why I should have said it at the beginning. But what is, so what does Jesus do? If he's being proclaimed as king, what would everyone expect him to do first? Fight for the little guy. Fight for us. Well, who does the king supposed to fight? The enemy, right? Right. And who does Israel think her enemy is? The nations. Rome, the other nations, Rome at the time, right? Right. So they're all wanting a Messiah. They're all wanting a king who will fight the enemy. And Jesus immediately after receiving the crown, being crowned by his father, goes to fight. But he doesn't go to Rome. The true enemy. Yeah, he goes to the wilderness. And the, in the ancient mindset, <laughs> the wilderness was actually seen as this kind of really scary place. It was seen spiritually as the domain of Satan. Because the wilderness... It's scary and animals could eat you and bandits hung out there and you didn't want to go into the wilderness by yourself. Um, and so, so it was sort of seen- camping wasn't like a big thing? It was not a big thing. Like it was a necessity. <laughs> but really what they're seeing is Jesus basically goes to where Satan lives to pick a fight. That's what the king does as his first royal act. Dude, that's cool. Which is, I think that's the appropriate way to read what happens then next. The king goes to fight for us into the domain of the evil one to the enemy and he goes to pick a fight with him. And then he fasts for 40 days. So take that. You have the, 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 the mighty warrior going into battle, and it's almost as if he goes into battle against the, the, the horrifying enemy, and he literally ties his hands around his back and says, now I'm going to go fight him. Right. I mean, this is, what, this is what the Gospels are saying by saying the king goes to fight the evil one in the evil one's own territory and fasts for... Can you... I mean... 40 days. I, I can't give up chocolate for 40 days for, for Dude, pizza. I, I mean, it's pathetic. On, I struggle on Ash Wednesday. He didn't eat anything for 40 days. I mean, which is not just, it, it's not this big, profound spiritual lesson. It is. But it's showing, it need, the, the text, the scriptures need to show that he is as powerless as a human being could possibly be at that point. Mm. And that's when he's going to show you how tough he is. Yeah. That's when he's going to fight. Which is just very significant. Obviously, the resonances of the 40 years of the wandering, but it's also just significant to show he depleted himself entirely right. before the big fight. Yeah. And that's what sets us up for this. Yeah. And he was hungry. <laughs> and he was hungry. <laughs> yeah. It's my favorite line. Do we and, get that today? Uh, yeah. And he was hungry. Yeah. And when, they, and when they were over, he was hungry. Yeah. And then, they were and then the devil shows up, right? Right. And he tempts him three times. Yeah, which, which I, I, Scott, you're saying such good things. I just want you to keep going, man. All right. Well, the three temptations, of course, correspond to the three temptations that Israel faces in the wilderness. You've heard that, right? In Exodus. <clears throat> in Exodus, yes. They correspond to all the temptations in Exodus, and I think uh, Numbers as well. Numbers also continues on telling the story of the wanderings. Okay. But Jesus' answer, his response to all the temptations, are actually from Deuteronomy. Right. Which is significant. So what are the three temptations? What's temptation number one? Bread. 
Yeah, food. That, that's the most explicit one. He's like, he's hungry. He didn't eat for 40 days. Right. He's tempted with bread. Just like Israel, when she was freed from Exodus, wandering in the wilderness, was like, we're hungry. And instead of being faithful and trusting, they complain and whine and moan and curse God and demand to be taken back into slavery. They fail. Jesus is successful. And he quotes Deuteronomy back at the evil one. What's the second temptation? Power and glory. <clears throat> Power and glory. Um, if you worship me. Power and glory, but not just power and glory. Power and glory if you bow down and worship Satan. Which is, a, I mean, that's, that's nobody's good thought of a good time. That's no, it's not. But where does that correspond to Israel? Oh, is it the, the golden calf? Yeah. The power, you got to oh. read past the power and glory. And how do they get that? Well, if we worship a foreign god. If we worship something that's not God, it's the golden calf, right? And the, the third temptation was what? Uh, then uh, throw yourself down. Yeah. From the from the pul- from the pulpit. The parapet. <laughs> parapet. Throw yourself, throw yourself down. down from the pulpit, boy. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah, and is and then he will command his angels to support you and to hold you up. Hold and how does that one correspond? Yeah, this one is the one that's a, it's a, it's a tiny bit slight, slightly less obvious because Israel never tries to throw itself down from anything. I mean, they kind of do spiritually, I suppose. <laughs> but it's in the response when Jesus says, "Don't you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And this is where it corresponds back to Israel, where Moses continually tells Israel, why do you keep putting God to the test? Specifically, Exodus 17 says that Israel was putting God to the test. And he kept responding by sending water and quail and things like that. Mm, but I also <clears> even <throat> think about the the reason why he didn't end up in the promised land is he hit the rock twice. Yeah. Is, it, is it he was actually meant to trust in the Lord, but rather than that, he actually decided to exert power. Yeah, I, I've been thinking about a lot about that question lately. Really? About Moses not in the promised land. Okay. And I um actually I this this came up there was a long discussion in the class that I'm teaching um the other day because I think I mean yeah Moses he did he he didn't fully trust he got mad he did things in a way that God asked him not to I mean there were definitely some stuff he did but it just seems so disproportionate yeah I mean, he struck the rock twice and he doesn't get to go to the prom like he was the only faithful one. And so I've always seen it as sort of a, a prefigurement of Jesus and the, the complete self-sacrifice, you know, and loss of these things on behalf of his people. But um, someone <coughs> in, in my class, Lily, actually, made the point of, she was like, well, what about when Moses actually told, remember when God was going to abandon Israel after the golden calf thing? And he's like, I'm out of here. And Moses is like, no, you have to stick with your people. Like, you need to be faithful. And what will the other nations think? And that, you remember that whole scene? Yeah. He's like, I will stand in solidarity with them. Because Moses, God, and I don't think God, God is, is kind of testing Moses here and kind of prodding Moses along. But God's like, well, I'll just take you, Moses. I'm done with those people. And you and me, we'll start a new nation together. And Moses is like, no, I'm with them. Yeah. I am one of them for better or for worse. He pronounces this really beautiful solidarity and, and intercession for them. And Lily in class pointed out that, well, maybe that's part of why he's not permitted to enter the promised land because he chose to sacrifice himself in that way to be in solidarity with his people. And he said, no, I am with them and I will suffer the faith that they suffer in a certain sense, mm. which is actually a really beautiful reading on it. Right. Um, because again, it's a disproportionate punishment. Right. But yeah, so that, there's some interesting things there. I'll hang on with that. Yeah, yeah. So I look and I and, and I'm and I'm trying to put all of this together. Yeah, this sense um, from 
these readings and I still don't have a link. Well, there's there's a directional thing kind of going on here. So you have at the very beginning, you have these words being given to Israel as they are leaving their time in the wilderness and about to enter into the promised land where they need so desperately to trust God, right. to not fall into those same temptations, to actually be faithful where their parents were unfaithful. Okay. And we know that the story ends up the opposite way. They are totally unfaithful. They don't trust. They blow it in worse ways. They do all of these terrible things as they're leaving this place. Yeah. And as we go through all of the readings of this sort of theme of entering into the temple, the presence of God, you then get to the gospel, the tail end, and you've reversed direction. So as we have been called out of the wilderness to go into the promised land, Jesus actually then takes on the curses and goes the opposite direction. He comes to Israel who could not handle the load that they'd been given, and he takes it and he goes back out. Mm. And literally directionally, the first reading and the gospel are going in opposite directions. One is leaving the wilderness, going to the promised land, and one is leaving the promised land, so to speak, of heaven and going into the wilderness, into the temptation, to face the fight that we can't face. Because the readings are saying, as much as we desire to enter into the presence of God, the promised land, the graces and the blessings he wants to give us in life, mm. we have the psalm, which reminds us, that's a little bit terrifying. Right. And so because it's a little bit terrifying, Jesus comes and says, I know it's terrifying. And I know it's really hard to walk forward in this way because you don't know what's on the other side. So I will take all of it and I will go back and I will fight the fights and I will take the terror away and I will defeat the terror so that you can have freedom to move forward. I will fight the battles that mm -hmm. Israel could not fight into the promised land. Yes. Because they could not trust. So I will take it upon myself, go back into the wilderness, take the terror, take the enemy, and defeat all of it so that they can move into my presence without fear. And, and this is where our journey in the midst of Lent, in these 40 days of Lent, is to accompany Christ, not to try to redo it ourselves. Not to redo it ourselves, but to accompany it. All he asks of his disciples as you follow through right. the Gospels is to stay and be with him. Right. And even at the he end. He does it. Even at the end of his earthly life, he says, can you just keep watch with me? Right. That's all I want. So yeah, Lent is the time that we don't redo it. We're not trying to fight all the battles again. We're simply accompanying him. On the battle that's already been that's won. That's already been won. That is, that is good. I really like that. That's yeah. a kicker of a line for the Peter. Well, I, friends, I mean, I think that there's no more to say then. I ain't got nothing. Yep. So you gave you gave so much today, Scott. I just appreciate <coughs> you. Like, I feel like I just got to sit at your feet for a little while. <laughs> Lord help us. Yeah, Lord help Ooh. us. So you're you're awesome. You guys are awesome for tuning in. I am so thankful. The 40,000 of you guys in the basement has been a little bit <laughs> cold, cramped. stinky in here. Yeah, a little cramped, a little That's hot, right. but like, nonetheless, awesome and glorious. God bless you all. See you next time. Bye. The Word on the Hill is a production of the Aquinas Institute for Catholic Thought here in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. You can find us online at www.thomascenter.org slash A-I-C-T. You can find the Lanky Guys at lankyguys.org, and you can send us an email at lankyguys at thomascenter.org. Thanks, everybody. See you next time.